When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Homes.com. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. As they say at homes.com, we've done your homework. Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. This episode of Freakonomics Radio is about swearing, and therefore it contains a lot of swearing. As is our custom, we have bleeped these swear words out. So this episode contains a lot of bleeping. If you don't want to hear those curse words even bleeped, now is a good time to find a different episode of Freakonomics Radio to listen to. Or maybe you want to hear the curse words without the bleeping, in which case you should go to Freakonomics.com where you will find the unbleeped version of this episode. As always, thanks for listening. Lately, I've been using my phone a lot for dictation. I will dictate emails, texts, and occasionally a note to myself, like when I think of a question I want to ask in an interview for this show. The other day, for instance, I dictated into my phone something like, Talk about the first time you did such and such, but the phone didn't render my dictation as talk about. It said f*** about. Since when did the voice recognition on my phone start using the F word? It struck me that swearing, or whatever you want to call it, profanity, blasphemy, curses and slurs, expletives and vulgarities, it struck me there seems to be more of it now than ever, and often in places you wouldn't expect. So today on Freakonomics Radio... Is it true that there's more swearing than ever? And if so, what does it mean? We will hear a little history. These are like people in the king's retinue. We'll learn why we don't know as much about swearing as you might think. He said, you know, that swearing research you're doing is not a good idea for tenure. We'll find out what these words are meant to accomplish. Swear words have this very particular set of physiological and emotional effects. And we'll ask the big question. Should we all be swearing even more? This is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything with your host, Stephen Dubner. Let's start by hearing from a few of our listeners. I tell my kids they need to save those words for when something really bad happens instead of saying I'm so effing happy. Because otherwise you have no language left to express extreme frustration or sadness or grief. What made me reassess my language was a conversation with a Spanish boy who I was dating. He told me that usually people that use swear words do so because they lack the vocabulary to express themselves better. I thought to myself, this motherfucker tells me my English is poor. Needless to say, we're no longer dating. I f***ing love cursing. I think it adds some oomph to your language. I think that is awesome. I do have an 18-month-old, so sometime soon I'm going to have to stop cursing. But for now, 
Freaking wee. Love you. That was respectively Kristen, Olga, and Rebecca. Apparently, none of our male listeners have ever sworn, but we did find one man who swears. Okay. My name is John McWhorter. I teach linguistics and some other things at Columbia University. I write a column for the New York Times, and my most recent two books were Nine Nasty Words about profanity and Woke Racism about race and cultural issues. So, John, how would you summarize the role of cursing in language? One thing that it's important to realize with cursing and profanity is that it isn't words in the sense that ironing board or yesterday or therefore are words. Profanity, when you're talking about real profanity, real cursing, is eruptions. There's the left side of the brain where most people process language as in the boy kicked the red ball. The right side of the brain is more Dionysian, is more about the melody, is more about the tone, and therefore is also where profanity is generated from. Profanity comes from such a different place emotionally than vanilla language, to the point that it often doesn't even make any grammatical sense. If I say, what the hell is that? Try parsing what hell is in that sentence other than just a kind of a dog bark. And here's another expert with a slightly different perspective. Swearing is the use of emotionally offensive language to vent our emotions and convey our emotions to other people. His name is Timothy Jay. Yeah, I'm a professor of psychology emeritus from the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. Would you call yourself a swearing scholar, or is that too reductive? I've been called worse. (laughs) I like to think of myself as pioneering the psychological research on American cursing. Having written six books on this and published dozens of professional articles, yes, I'm a scholar. What would you say are the chief things that you've learned about swearing then? It's a normal behavior. It's not abnormal. It's part of language. Every competent speaker of a language knows what they're not supposed to say. One of the myths comes up about control. All of those swearers just can't control themselves. Why does Jay call this a myth, the idea that swearing represents a loss of control? Well, this goes back to research from the early 1980s when Jay set out to document the use of swearing and other taboo words. We've recorded over 10,000 people swearing in public with different means. In public, meaning places like schools and stores and at sporting events. I had a cadre of research assistants, and we had these pre-printed field cards. They had categories like the speaker, the listener, their ages, what was said, and what was the emotional surround. Was this joking? Was it anger? We've also used voice-activated tape recorders and put them in various places. This recording and note-taking was all done covertly, without the subject's knowledge. But Jay also asked people directly about swearing. I've surveyed hundreds, thousands of students, having them fill out surveys on how frequently these words are used and how offensive they are. When you started this research, I'm curious how your academic peers and or elders responded. Negatively. I had a dean pull me aside at a social event. I'm right out of college, 26 years old. I've got a wife and a kid. He said, you know, that swearing research you're doing is not a good idea for tenure. So I switched gears for a while, and I became a guru of computer-assisted instruction. Wow, that is a big gear switch. Eventually, I won the G. Stanley Hall Award for Excellence in Education by incorporating computers into psychology. And about the same time, I got tenure. Now you can do what you wanted to do in the first place. Yeah. One of my buddies said, Tim, everybody's doing this computer stuff. Nobody's doing the taboo word research. The first analysis I did, I had a Nike sneaker box 
that was filled up with these cards. I said, okay, we've got to go through and analyze all of this. We wanted to document the whole arc of this. What happens in the preschool years? What happens in the school years? Certainly there are age differences. There are gender differences. You have boys and girls, men and women, emoting with, say, anger or aggression, and they're using different language. You can make all of these age and gender-related comparisons. Okay, here are a few comparisons. First, gender. Men do curse more often than women. They use a larger variety of swear words and more hardcore swear words. This holds true for the internet era as well. Men and women both swear more when in the presence of their own gender. And what about age? The arc is adolescence. Preschoolers don't have the vocabulary that teenagers do. By the time you're at 12, 13, 14, you've got a pretty adult-like vocabulary. What happens after that depends on the setting. Is this person in a structured corporate setting, or are they working outside as a laborer? Are they playing sports? It becomes very contextualized after that. As to the why, the purpose of swearing, and obviously it differs from person to person, situation to situation, even I can think of a lot of different reasons. You might be angry, you might be disgusted, you might be trying to elicit humor from someone else, you might be trying to bond, you might be trying to show that you are your own person and I won't be bound by society's rules. If I ask you to give the answer to the title of this one book of yours, Why We Curse, why do we? How answerable is that question? You just answered it. (laughs) Stephen, you just elaborated a lot of the reasons why people swear. Now, we're the only animal with emotional architecture in the physiological that can express our emotions abstractly with words. I regard this as an evolutionary leap that instead of fighting tooth and nail when we're angry with someone, we can say, I hate you, or a variety of other words. Okay. And what about the common belief that swearing is more popular among the less educated, the lower classes, than the upper? Timothy J. says that this, too, is somewhat mythical. The data that have been collected, Tony McEnery did this in England. He collected phone conversations. That's a much more class-oriented culture than ours. He's able to see that, yeah, there's more swearing in the working class, but there's swearing everywhere. There's swearing in every class. This class-oriented view of swearing is snobbery. It's a way to put the working person down, the lower classes down. Jay has seen further evidence in his own research. We gave people a task. Say all the words you can think of that begin with the letter F. Say all the words that begin with the letter A. Then you give them a minute to do that. It's a measure of fluency. Then I ask them, all right, name all the animals you can in a minute. And then name all the swear words you can in a minute. Which if you try to do this, you can get out about 10 quickly. (laughs) The people who generated the most swear words were the people who generated the most letter words and animals. It's the opposite of what people think. People that have a high vocabulary also have a high swearing vocabulary. It really doesn't make any sense that if you couldn't think of a word because it wasn't in your lexicon, you would say a swear word. That doesn't make any sense. John McWhorter agrees that the class-based swearing theory is bankrupt. Any notion that being a classy person is to not curse has fallen completely apart. I would say that as a very bourgeois, upper-middle-class person who has no interest in shocking anybody, nor am I trying to take it down in order to indicate that despite the fact that I'm not poor, I'm still down with everybody else, I say probably a dozen times a day. And I think I'm ordinary for people of my, you know, place and station. That was not true in 1950, but that's the way it is now. Cursing is no longer about sailors and bar stools. So, John, there is a sense that there is more swearing today than in the past. I'm curious to know whether that's at all true. There is definitely today, in public language, more use of words that used to be considered blasphemous against God or 
blasphemous against the authorities that say that you're not supposed to talk about sex and excretion. I mean, the way language is used on a TV show, even like Parks and Recreation, and then certainly in shows like, you know, The Wire, that's new. That's public language. But then on the other hand, I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that those words just don't have the meaning that they used to. I asked Timothy Jay the same question. Is there more swearing now than in the past? Unanswerable question. Preceding my work, there aren't collections of swearing. So there's no way to tell. History is written by the literate. You have no idea what language was like in a tavern or a brothel. And but wait a minute. You just told us that swearing is not necessarily the province of the uneducated. So why wouldn't the literate swear as well? Censorship. The written documents have not included the language except maybe Chaucer, where you just have examples and those aren't frequency counts. That's also a certain kind of bawdiness more than defaming a deity, let's say. Yes. I remember having to read The Miller's Tale in high school and not understanding what I was reading about Absalon using the word Q-U-E-N-T-E. And there's my English teachers having us read this stuff out loud. And I'm going like, she got to go home and laugh her ass off. Whether the frequency of swearing is up or down over time, John McWhorter says we are currently living through the third major phase of swearing in human history. That's coming up after the break. Also, what does swearing do to you? If you call someone a f***ing idiot, your heart rate increases. I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Freakonomics Radio. We will be right back. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by True Green. True Green takes care of all the hard work it takes to get a great lawn so you can take care of everything else in your busy schedule. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more so you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you know you're in good hands because they are the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. That's T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Canva. Supercharge your work with AI-powered Magic Write in Canva Docs. You can just describe what you want to say in a few words, and Magic Write will generate a draft in seconds. You can use it for sales proposals, marketing plans, job descriptions, meeting agendas, you name it. Tweak your draft, and you're done. It is a serious time saver and the perfect way to beat the blank page. Generate your draft with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That hurtful comment your friend made, that frustrating thing your mom does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever is weighing you down so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Freakonomics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Freakonomics. What have we learned so far about swearing? First, it's hard to know whether there's more of it today than before. It's even hard to know whether swearing is a normal, albeit heightened, part of language or not a regular part of language at all. To add one more complication, swearing, like all of language, refuses to sit still. Here again is the Columbia linguist John McWhorter. Language changes just like cloud patterns change. It's never not changed, and you just can't stop it. Since language is always evolving, swearing is always evolving as well. 
The neatest thing about the evolution of profanity is how differently people in different times feel about certain kinds of words. And this brings us to what McWhorter describes as the three major eras of swearing over the history of humankind. So it used to be that profanity was about religion. It was about God and Jesus. You were allowed to swear to God if you meant it. It was a form of signature in a society where most people couldn't write. So I swear to God that I will do X, Y, or Z. What you weren't supposed to do was swear in vain because that was to disrespect God. And therefore, you had euphemisms for by God, etc., when you weren't going to do it sincerely. That's why we say swearing. It used to be that you actually were swearing to something, and then it becomes shorthand for using bad words. And what are some of those euphemisms? Gadzooks. Ogs Bodkins, E. Gad, By George, Jeez, Jeepers Creepers, G. Willikers. Okay, so phase one of swearing had to do with religion. Then there comes a time around the Renaissance when there develops a sense of privacy that wasn't known before. And along with that sense of privacy and perhaps individualism due to the Reformation, you have this new sense that what's profane is talking too freely about the body. And so sex and excretion goes from being a giggle to being something that you absolutely don't put down in writing and that you don't use in public. And all of this gets worse with the development of bourgeois society. And so that's when you get the idea that shit and f- and the like are very, very bad words rather than just, you know, mundane things that are part of being a human being. So that phase lasts for a while. It's not that the God words suddenly are okay. You have two layers, but it's certainly the case that throughout that time, damn and hell become less potent as profanity while and become so unspeakable that as late as, you know, the Kennedy administration, their dictionaries being published and big ones where is not in it. Then there's a new phase that we're in where what is considered profane is slurring subordinate groups. That's why there's such a difference between the way the N-word was used in popular culture, even as recently as the 70s, when sitcom characters could, within reason, use it, especially if they were black. And today, where just the utterance of the two syllables in any way is often thought of as a transgression of legitimate humanity. So we go from religion to the body, to slurring against groups. And you can see that as, and this is no disrespect intended against religion, but it's the intellectual and moral development of our society. If we're going to be sacred about something, my personal feeling is that it's better for it to be about slurs against groups than about Jesus or your butt. Okay, let me ask you, so you happen to be black. I happen to be, yeah. Do you ever find yourself in writing as you do quite a bit about race and racism and language? Do you ever find yourself having to signal overtly that you are black? Yeah. Sometimes when I'm writing about language, and especially if I'm writing about the N-word, sometimes I do feel like I have to slip it in because there are different tacit rules as far as that word goes. As much as McWhorter cares about contemporary language, and as much as he knows and cares about language from the distant past, you get the sense that he is most tickled by the rules of language during the second of the three eras of swearing, when the words considered the most taboo had to do with the human body. For instance, Oh, is amazing. And you see it popping up in early Middle English, not in prose, but in names. There were actually people taken seriously with names like Roger by the Naval and Henry Beggar, literally. And this is not in some funny poem. These are like people in the king's retinue. And there were places called F***ing Grove. And you know what that was for, but it was on a sign. It wasn't something that people said among themselves. And then there comes a time when you're not supposed to use the word that way anymore. And there's all evidence that people were using it, but they weren't supposed to write it down. Or if they did, they wrote it in code. The idea being that it is a profane word, but it just started as a vulgar but common and accepted word for sexual intercourse. You write about a monk in 1528. He's talking about an abbot 
he calls him a f***ing Abbott. So that's meant to be just a general, I think he's an idiot kind of thing. What you see on the page is O, then a space, then D, and then f***ing Abbott. And you think that what he's writing is old f***ing Abbott and that because it's an old document, somebody smudged out the L. But no, there is no L smudged out. What he's writing is O and he's abbreviating damned f***ing Abbott. And so for him, you don't write damn because that's blasphemy. But then with f***ing, he puts that in with this kind of Beavis and Butthead snicker. Let's hear some more about this middle era of swearing. So there were a lot of names for plants and animals, which I think are so funny. You had a plant called Kator. There was a heron, the English word for heron was shiro. Oh, yeah. And then windfucker. That was a good one. <laughs> windfucker was a bird, a kestrel. That is Melissa Moore. And I am a writer. i got to figure out how to explain what I do. I'm a writer. My name is Melissa Moore, and I'm a writer. Moore is the author of a book called Holy Shit, A Brief History of Swearing. She had planned on being an academic, and she got a PhD in medieval and Renaissance English literature, but somehow she got sidetracked by swearing. Yes. So when I was getting my PhD, I was reading a lot of medieval and Renaissance texts, obviously. As one does. <laughs> As one does. And I noticed that the swearing was really different. And the kinds of language that people were getting upset about was, you know, religious in nature. And the kinds of language that they weren't getting upset about were the things we do get upset about. And so I, you know, got interested in how and why that transition happened. If you've been paying attention, you will notice that Melissa Moore is now talking about the same transition that John McWhorter was telling us about, a new taboo on words concerning sex and excretion. Now, why did this new taboo arise? Moore thinks it was driven not only by the newfound personal privacy, but by the technologies that made such privacy increasingly possible. So, you know, the bedroom, actually it needed an innovation in fireplace technology before we got bedrooms. Because <laughs> in the time of Beowulf, you just had a big central fire pit and people slept in the hall, ate in the hall, peed and defecated in the hall under the straw. I mean, it was really, it was like a barn. And eventually 12th, 13th century, you got better fireplaces, aristocrats could get bedrooms. And it just took a long, long time before people had a sense of space that they could sort of, you know, be private. Originally, even privies weren't private. You'd have multi-seat privies and just go in there together. Actually, solitude was a sort of suspicious thing. Like, what were you doing? by yourself. It's like you and the devil if you're not with other people. In her book, Moore cites a pamphlet written in 1530 by the philosopher and theologian Desiderius Erasmus, advising young boys that it is impolite to greet someone who is urinating or defecating. Court regulations from the same era said, quote, one should not, like rustics who have not been to court or lived among refined and honorable people, relieve oneself without shame or reserve in front of ladies. As people got wealthier, you could become solitary and it started to be, you know, not such a bad thing. And once you could be solitary, you could take care of your bodily functions in private. Meanwhile, there was a change in the practice of religious oath-taking, what John McWhorter had described as, I swear to God that I will do X, Y, or Z. Melissa Moore argues that the spread of trade and capitalism meant that this sort of oath-taking was no longer practical or necessary. By the 17th century, these oaths were just coming so thick and fast that you couldn't, you know, it's like one, you swear this, no, now you swear that. And as trade spread and people became involved in more and more transactions with people who they hadn't grown up with as people moved and commerce opened up, what became the guarantee of your honesty was not your swearing, but the fact that you continued to do business. This decline in oath-taking may have even helped boost the taboo index of all those newly dirty words about the human body. And then came the Victorians. Yes. So 
the Victorian era was a sort of high point of power for the obscene words that are, you know, based in body parts and actions. So trousers, for instance, was a very taboo word because, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it really was because if you pulled them down, you were naked and they had kind of revealed the shape of your leg. And so you couldn't say trousers. And so there were all these crazy euphemisms for trousers that people would use, like et cetera's inexpressibles. It's easy to laugh now from this distance at the notion of trousers being a taboo word among those long ago prudes. But we maybe shouldn't laugh too quickly. John McWhorter again. People back in the 20s and 30s thought that it was profane to say belly. He's talking about the 1920s and 30s. In the movie musical 42nd Street, there's a lyric where there's a reference to with a shotgun at his belly. And then she changes it to tummy instead of saying belly, despite the fact that belly rhymes with Nelly on the next line. You just kind of weren't supposed to say it. Coming up after the break... These days, while belly and other words have become accepted, a long list of long accepted words is being challenged. Yeah, can't say white. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Freakonomics Radio. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When we swear... What are we trying to accomplish? Here's a clue. In 2017, an international group of researchers ran a series of experiments to analyze the relationship between profanity and honesty. They found that people who swear are perceived as more authentic. Here again is John McWhorter. Part of becoming close to people, part of becoming part of a group, is to be able to let your hair down, is to show that you don't think you're better than other people. And one of the best ways to do that is to use salty language. That is normal human behavior. And here is Timothy Jay on the various uses of swearing. It's humor, it's bonding, it's defending yourself, it's putting people down, it's self-denigration, it's storytelling. Jay has written about swearing research that shows physiological benefits as well. Melissa Moore is also a fan of this research. Well, yeah. So it's basically if you're swearing or hearing swear words, your skin conductance response changes. So, you know, the way your skin conducts electricity, there is a famous ice bucket challenge where you can stick your hand in ice water longer if you're using a swear word than if you're not using a swear word. Someone also did a grip challenge. You can, you know, hold a gripper with more strength and for longer if you're swearing. That's interesting. It'd be fun to try that with current swear words versus the more toothless old swear words. What do you think is more common over time for 
words that are taboo to become less taboo or vice versa? Hmm, that's an interesting question. You've got this kind of euphemism treadmill that Steven Pinker talks about, where it starts off as a bad word, but then people use it more and more, and then you get used to it, and then it falls away, and then you need to come up with another bad word, and you've seen that with the religious words. We're seeing it with f***ing and shit. But on the other hand, homeless person becomes taboo. Yes. Right now we are in a new, new Victorianism in that way. And of course, that's very culturally specific in the United States. Like among my relatives in Wisconsin who didn't go to college, they're not going to say the unhoused, you know, (laughs) but in academia and Cambridge, it's, yeah. Can I share with you this story, something that happened that I think just illustrated where we are now? I happen to play golf. So I hope you don't judge if you hate golf. (laughs) And I belong to this club. Very nice people. And I was up there not long ago. And there were these three ladies getting ready to tee off. And one of them was describing this tournament that they're playing in was one where you could play the 18 holes anytime you wanted and register your score. So in other words, you could choose when to play it based on the conditions, the weather and so on, but also based on where... On a given day, the holes were cut on the green because they move around and some days they seem easier and some days harder. So she was describing how the two women she was playing with, that they would like game the system to like drive up to the course one day. And if they saw the flags were in a bad place, they would choose not to register their score that day. And so she was describing how they were being a little bit like, you know, strategic or sneaky was the word she was using. But as she was saying it, she was saying, well, these sneaky ladies, and she's like, oh, wait, 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 I can't use that word, ladies. These sneaky gals, oh, no, no, I can't say gals. And she said, these sneaky motherfuckers, here's what they... <laughs> In what world is like motherfucker now okay? But it was. Wow. So what does that mean? Yeah, that is really funny. Well, I don't think that the whole world will move in that direction. But yeah, people are preemptively worried about causing offense. Like I'm sure no one would have been offended by ladies, but you want to just make sure that whatever you say has no possibility of offending anyone. Did you see the Stanford University IT list of words that people couldn't say? Yeah, it was meant to make technology more inclusive. It had very good aims, but it was, you know, don't say American. Use U.S. citizen because if you say American, you know, there are so many countries in the Americas, you're disrespecting them. Don't say... I'm seeing, I looked it up now, you can't say white paper? White paper, right. Yeah, because can't say white. Yeah. So what do you think of that use? Do you think it's a good idea that that word be restricted? I don't think it's a good idea. I don't know. It is funny because I know John McWhorter is a very powerful advocate for, you know, not bowing to these winds. I think I probably quietly bow to the winds. (laughs) Yeah, I think we overdo it today. And that is the unbowing John McWhorter. The idea that somebody can lose their job because they use the N-word. And this is the important thing. We're losing the difference between using it and referring to it. For somebody to lose their job because they talk about the N-word, that's going into treating that sequence of sounds as taboo, which is, frankly, the way people acted about the excretion words. And I think we could get... Beyond that. But, you know, when did people not overdo things? And in general, if we are going to be pious about something, for it to be about disrespecting minority groups, I fully get that. That's an advance. That's a moral advance. But because this is language we're talking about, things are always changing and there are always complications. We often talk about how groups can denature a slur by taking it on themselves, but that doesn't mean that the sting doesn't remain when it's applied by people from the outside. You can witness this with the N-word. You can witness this with the word bitch. I think it's one thing for women to use it as an in-group term, but for the rest of us to casually use it when we happen to be upset with someone who's a woman, that was much more common in, say, the 70s or 80s than now. That's a good thing. We need to stop that. Now, what's your position on bleeping curse words? Is it just a charade? Yes. 
or is it a good idea? The only ones that should be bleeped are the slurs against groups. However, that's just me, and I know many people would rather their children not hear the salty words, at least not until a certain point. I frankly disagree because I think we're living in a different world. If your children around the age of nine are going to start hearing pop songs that are full of shameless profanity, and I have now watched that happen with my two little girls, I'm not sure why they should ever have listened to anything where words were bleeped out because I think we don't give kids enough credit for understanding context. Very early on, my girls noticed that daddy says f*** a lot. (laughs) They instantly knew he does that, that's funny, but we're not supposed to do it. And I cannot prescribe for other people and how they raise their kids. But my kids have been raised listening to fluent profanity, not the slurs, but the other ones since birth. I may be reading too much into what you just said, but it sounds as though you're saying that profanity can help develop a sort of linguistic sophistication in that it's a set of words that one is allowed or even encouraged to use in some circumstances, probably private ones and not in others, probably public ones and so on. Can you talk about that notion, whether profanity really does help us become better at our language? Frankly, yes, because the way profanity is used is often not just colorful, and it's not just independent eruptions, but there is subtlety to it. There is wit to it. You have to learn when to hit the note, not to hit the note too many times. (laughs) It's one way of being articulate. Which curse word in English would you say is the most flexible? is astonishing. Give me the first, like, seven sentences that come to mind with serving as different functions. Everything f***s in there. F*** was that. Get your hands the f*** off of me. I don't have any more f***s left to give. He didn't do f*** all. I am broke as f***. This person f***ed the other person. Or mother f***er. And you're not really talking about f***ing at all. Melissa Moore is also fairly fluent with the f-word. You can stick it in the middle of words. That's absolutely not going to work. Intensifier. That's amazing. It can be a person. You're a dumb fuck. I never cease to be amazed by how many different ways you can use it and how the people who use it the most often are considered inarticulate, vulgar, lazy, when really a grammarian could spend days feasting at figuring out exactly what each usage of fuck was doing. What the fuck is it doing there? What's the meaning of that? What about realms or precincts in which swearing profanity is still really not welcome? I guess I'm thinking mostly public realms. I mean, look, there are some people who just don't swear and don't like it, right? We agree on that. But then, like, in politics, for instance, you're pretty much supposed to not swear still. What do you think about that? I think that In all languages, there is a high kind of language. That might be about religion. It might be about, you know, battle cries. So if Joe Biden says when Obamacare is being signed, this is a f***ing big deal, it's going to be considered remarkable. We're not going to be a society with no sense of ceremony. And profanity amidst ceremony is always going to seem a little bit out of place, except very judiciously applied. So, for instance, you would not be in favor of Biden, let's say, during a televised address to the nation saying, look, America, Vladimir Putin is a real asshole. It would sound trivializing. Yeah. I wouldn't find it immoral. I would not clutch my pearls. But I think there would be better ways of explaining what a terrible force he is that would have a gravitas other than using a towel snapping word. It's interesting you say trivializing. Doesn't it have a power that could convey some usefulness? The problem with toll or the related motherfucker in that usage is that we tend to use those terms for everyday sorts of things. You get cut off in traffic. Somebody takes the last slice of pizza. Whereas with Putin, we're talking about somebody who's monstrous. You want to bring out words that connote that he's not cutting you off in traffic, that he's you know committing an atrocity as grave as genocide. That's not an asshole. With Putin, it's beyond asshole. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing it right, is that profanity performs a lot of different roles, but among them are that there's a playfulness, but also a sort of 
triviality to it. And if I'm reading you right, then I'm going to go the next step and say, and that probably means we should all be swearing a little bit more than we do. Is that a logical conclusion or not quite? It is. And that's where we're dealing with this dividing line between salty and profane, because we're using those salty words more. It's a more honest rendition of how we actually feel about life. But we're using them so commonly that we can't say that we're profaning against anything. Now, how that's going to play out in terms of our slurs against groups, that's going to be interesting where the next angle of profanity is going to go. But where you've got things that are especially on that fine line between salty and profane, and even when they're profane, you're going to use them sometimes. And it's part of the general toolkit of being a whole human being. I also asked Melissa Moore if perhaps we should be swearing more. So for obscene words like shit and fuck and cut, should we be swearing more? I mean, they can be useful. It's funny that some studies, though, that even the people who have done the ice bucket study, you know, that says you can keep your hand in longer if you're swearing. If you're a habitual swearer, that effect goes away. So... I wouldn't say we should be swearing more. I think we should swear an appropriate amount. But if you swear constantly, it kind of loses its oomph. And I asked Timothy J the same question. We should all be more aware of what swearing is, where it's valuable, where it's harmful. Think about your toolbox. I'd rather somebody swear at me than ram me with their car or pull a gun on me. I had a guy throw a hammer at me once in a car. Why? I passed him. So he got angry because I passed him. I thought he was driving too slow, and then he got at a hammer and threw it off. I'd rather he would just give me the finger. Before we go, let's hear from a few more of our listeners. Here first is Allison. A lot of women especially don't like using the C word, but I decided to embrace it because I had a former friend that really did me wrong. And so I started calling her, you're going to want to bleep the And it really made me feel good. It was cathartic to call her that. And I did for many months. And then I realized one day that I did not need to use that word anymore. I didn't have a need for it. And I think being able to express that anger through the use of that swear word was really helpful to me. And here's Alex, finally, a male listener who at least knows what swearing is and isn't. When my mother was 100 years old, we were all sitting around the table one night talking and someone said something very interesting. And my mother looked up and said, shut the front door. We have no idea where she learned that expression, but we laughed for hours. And with the final word, here's Jennifer. When I was a teenager, I was not the nicest to my mother. And one morning when I was rushing to leave the house, she became very upset with my attitude and said I needed to stop being a little witch, which surely was not her best parenting moment. But I heard a B instead of a W, and I turned around and screamed, no, you're the bitch, and proceeded to slam the door right onto my pinky finger and broke it. So in the end, I learned that karma's a bitch, not my mom. Thanks to all our listeners for sending in tape, and thanks to John McWhorter, Timothy J, and Melissa Moore for so capably walking us through the thorny and fascinating landscape of swearing. Coming up next time on the show. Do you ever wonder why all of your projects are always late? Over budget, over time, over and over again. And why do we procrastinate? Oh God, what is the primary root cause of procrastination? <laughs> like, get to the heart of everything I've thought about for the last 15 years in one question. Why your projects are late and what to do about it. That's next time on the show. Until then, take care of yourself, and if you can, someone else too. 
Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. This episode was produced by Catherine Moncure and mixed by Greg Rippin with help from Jeremy Johnston. Our staff also includes Zach Lipinski, Morgan Levy, Ryan Kelly, Alina Coleman, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Julie Canfer, Sarah Lilly, Eleanor Osborne, Jasmine Klinger, Daria Klenert, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, and Elsa Hernandez. The Freakonomics Radio Network's executive team is Neil Carruth, Gabriel Roth, and me, Stephen Dubner. Our theme song is Mr. Fortune by The Hitchhikers. All the other music was composed by Luis Guerra. I don't know if swearing was invented for golf or golf was invented (laughs) for swearing. What's your favorite on-course curse? It starts out like, oh, Jesus, goddamn, and then mother me. It depends on how bad it is and who I'm with. The Freakonomics Radio Network, the hidden side of everything. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.